Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. I was born in Plainfield, New Jersey in the early 70s. And all my memories of where I lived is this kind of utopia. Keep in mind, this is in the eyes of a kid, but it was just perfect. A middle-class black neighborhood where I knew all of our neighbors. I got to play until the streetlights came on. And every weekend, a bunch of kids came over and hung out in the basement because my dad had the only VHS player around. The house we lived in, it was a fixer-upper. My parents poured all their money, sweat, and love into that home. And by the time we moved to Florida in the 80s, my dad was so proud of that house, it hurt to leave. I didn't get back to Jersey for a visit till about four years later, in the middle of the crack epidemic. And my little neighborhood was hit hard. The streets I used to play on, they just looked different. A lot of my friends had left, and those who stayed told us that our old house had turned into a crack house. Boarded up, diminished and dark. I will never forget the look in my dad's eyes. Like, like he'd lost something he'd never get back that day. This season, the podcast The Uncertain Hour from Marketplace is looking back at that time, at the crack epidemic, and seeing how it connects to the opiate crisis America is dealing with today. The podcast begins by zeroing in on this one seminal moment when the war on drugs hit the streets of American cities with a new fierceness and left our laws, our prisons, and our neighborhoods changed in ways we're still dealing with right now. Today on Reveal, stories from the uncertain hour. Here's the show's host, Chrissy Clark. If you happen to be watching TV on the evening of September 5th, 1989, flipping through the channels, you might have seen the image of the White House flashing across your screen. Live from the Oval Office, President George Bush addresses the nation. The image cuts to President George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush. He's sitting at his desk, blue suit, red tie, white handkerchief peeking out of his left pocket. Good evening. This is the first time since taking the oath of office that I felt an issue was so important, so threatening, that it warranted talking directly with you, the American people. It was Bush's very first televised address from the Oval Office since being elected president in 1988. And there was one issue he wanted to talk about. All of us agree that the gravest domestic threat facing our nation today is drugs. Mostly one drug. Cocaine, and in particular, crack. 
Crack, Bush says, is America's most serious problem. It's sapping our strength as a nation. And then, 77 seconds in, he turns to his left, reaches under his desk, and pulls out this clear plastic bag full of white, chalky chunks. This, this is crack cocaine seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. There's a close-up of the baggie. You can just make out the word evidence printed on the top. Drugs are a real and terribly dangerous threat to our neighborhoods, our friends, and our families. No one among us is out of harm's way. But the president said he was going to protect us from this threat with ambitious plans to transform the war on drugs take it to new, unprecedented heights. And it was all wrapped up in this one dramatic prop. In fact, if you talk to people who happened to see the speech that night, that's the thing they usually remember most. He was holding up a bag of crack and saying somebody was selling crack across the street from the White House. For Don Schatz, something about that just didn't sound right. You know, nothing is impossible when it comes to drugs. But when you break it down, you really think about it, nobody sells crack in front of the White House. And Don should know, because... Back then, across town, he was also selling crack. No, nah, everything is in not the White House, not nowhere downtown where they buying drugs, no. You know, so it was odd. So that park in front of the White House where the baggie of crack that Bush held up in his speech came from, it's called Lafayette Park. And here we are. I went there recently. It's lovely. A big green square, lots of benches, fountains. This park is not at all a place that seems conducive to crack dealing. For one thing, there's a lot of tourists taking pictures, holding cameras. It's the place people go to take that iconic shot of the White House. Here is a Secret Service agent who is getting his picture taken by tourists. Can we take our picture with you? You know, needless to say, there's a a, a police presence because of where the park is. Michael Isakoff walked through Lafayette Park all the time back in 1989. He worked a few blocks away at the Washington Post. He was a reporter there, and he covered the president's speech about the baggie of crack. I was watching it on TV uh, and reporting on it because I was the drug reporter. For Mike, knowing what he knew about Lafayette Park, the constant police presence, the tourists, he kept coming back to this question. How did that crack come to be there? That's not a natural place where you would um, expect to see drug dealing. Mike started digging. One of the first calls he made was to the U.S. Park Police, who patrolled Lafayette Park. He asked him, have you had a lot of crack dealing in Lafayette Park? And the answer I got was no. We don't consider that a problem area. There's too much activity going on there for drug dealers. There's always a uniformed police presence there. In fact, the commander of criminal investigations told Mike there hadn't been any crack arrests in Lafayette Park ever. Until this one uh, that led to the crack that was in the president's speech. And that, and that got my attention. So Mike starts calling his sources at DEA. He talks to William McMullen, the assistant special agent in charge of the Washington, D.C. field office. Who told me this remarkable story. 
And the story McMullen told him was this. A few days before the president's speech, McMullen had gotten a call from the executive assistant to the head of the DEA, who told him that the White House speechwriters had written this line into the president's speech and came up with the idea of using a bag of crack as a prop. And could DEA oblige by doing a drug bust around the White House? And McMullen says, Well, there isn't really uh, a lot of crack dealing around the White House. McMullen explained there were plenty of other parts of D.C. where there was a lot of crack dealing going on. The drugs seemed to be flooding the city's poorest neighborhoods at the time. And the DEA was setting up some undercover buys several blocks away. And uh, what he got was any possibility of you moving down to the White House. What is going through your mind as you are hearing these these pieces of the story? Wow. (laughs) So this was all a setup, uh, is what I'm thinking. And in fact, it was. The details of the setup that Mike Isakoff proceeded to dig up, the intricate choreography involved, it was pretty bonkers. An undercover DEA agent reached out to an informant he'd been working with, saying he was trying to set up a crack deal with someone in Lafayette Park. The informant suggested an acquaintance of his, this kid. A teenager who lived in another part of Washington, northeast Washington, miles away from the White House. The kid got a call, was told someone wanted to buy some crack from him, and wanted to make the buy in Lafayette Park, across from the White House. And the kid was like... Where the fuck is the White House? Mike Isakoff says William McMullen, the DEA agent he spoke to, sounded kind of proud of the lengths they'd gone to to get the kid to the White House. Quote, We had to manipulate him to get him down there. It wasn't easy. It was late September, a couple weeks after the president had delivered his speech, that the Washington Post ran Mike Isakoff's article exposing the backstory of the baggie of crack. It was on the front page. Headline, drug buy set up for Bush speech. DEA lured seller to Lafayette Park. From there, the media was all over this story of a president caught manufacturing reality. To the strange story of that bag of crack Mr. Bush held up during his anti-drug speech to the nation earlier this month. The sale was real, but the location was a fake. Mr. Bush's staff wanted to buy some crack. The day the story came out, President Bush was doing a press-op at a family tree farm in Kennebunkport, Maine. He seemed to be blissfully unaware of the media blowback he was about to get. Mr. President, what do you have to say about the drug bust the DEA engineered for your prop of the drug speech? Without a beat, President Bush answers. I think it was great because it sent a message to the United States that even across from the White House, they're selling, they can sell drugs. A gaggle of reporters jumps in. But the park police say there's usually no drug activity there. Did you manipulate the American people into thinking there was a serious problem in front of the White House? Did you ask for the bag of crack for the speech? And Bush owns it. I said I'd like to have something from that vicinity to show that it can happen anywhere. Absolutely. And that's what ha- that's what they gave me, and they told me where they parked this guy. A week after the story broke about the choreographed crack buy in front of the White House, 
Comedian Dana Carvey was on the stage of Saturday Night Live with a parody of it. And the drug problem. Bigger than ever. This is, this is cocaine crack. I'll tell you something, this crack was bought right here in the White House. Three feet from this desk. It's bad. This definitely was not the way it was supposed to go. You might wonder who came up with the idea of the president using a baggie of crack as a prop in the first place. Well, it was a speechwriter named Mark Davis. We felt that it would bring it home to every American who's been a tourist and walked by the White House to think that this is happening right here in your nation's capital. If it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. But he says the plan was never to have the DEA set up a special drug buy near the White House just for the speech. He says the White House told the DEA, Don't do anything special for us. Do not do anything on our behalf. Take this out of inventory. Of course, that's not what happened. And when the story became public, White House officials from that time tell me they were afraid it would undermine the whole message they were trying to get across. And I want to spend a little time talking about that message. I want you to understand the full weight of it, which means you need to understand how America was thinking about drugs when President Bush gave that speech. It's very different from where we are today. By September 1989, it had been almost two decades since Richard Nixon first declared a war on drugs. Public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. And yet, despite Nixon's hawkish rhetoric... The 70s were overall actually a pretty dovish time for federal drug policy. In fact, Nixon put more money into drug treatment than arresting drug dealers. At the same time, Congress lowered federal penalties for drug trafficking, and Jimmy Carter talked about decriminalizing marijuana. By the early 1980s, though, the pendulum was swinging the other way. The mood toward drugs is changing in this country, and the momentum is with us. President Reagan relaunched the war on drugs while he was in office. We've taken down the surrender flag and run up the battle flag, and we're going to win the war on drugs. He was mostly focused on international cocaine cartels. Crack wasn't even mentioned in the national media until 1985. But by the late 80s, the news was full of stories like these. There's a new drug called crack out there that's more addicting than cocaine. Every five minutes, a baby is born in the United States exposed to crack. 48 hours on Crack Street. It could be anybody's street. It was a scary time. In a national poll that periodically asks Americans what they see as the most important problem facing the country, by the spring of 1989, the top response was... Not jobs, not the economy, not the issue of war and peace... But drug abuse is the nation's leading overall concern right now. So when George H.W. Bush sat at his desk in the Oval Office in September of 1989 to make his first live address to the nation, drugs seemed like an issue worth staking a claim, building a reputation on. And so the point of his speech, the big message he was trying to convey to the country, was that under his leadership, the war on drugs, especially on crack, was going to get even tougher than it had ever been. Tough on drug criminals. Much tougher than we are now. Tougher federal laws. Tougher penalties. Beef up law enforcement. Toughen sentences. Build new prison space. Stiffer bail. And for the drug kingpins, the death penalty. 
I should point out, it wasn't just Republicans like Bush who were gung-ho on the war on drugs back then. By this moment in the 80s, Republicans and Democrats were in the middle of a kind of arms race in the war on drugs. Each party wanted to be the toughest party. A few years before, in the run-up to the midterm elections of 1986, it was Democrats in Congress, white and black ones, who spearheaded sweeping anti-drug legislation, laws that established new mandatory minimum penalties for drugs, major funding for prisons. Eric Sterling was a Democratic staffer for the U.S. House of Representatives at the time. He was involved in writing key parts of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. Intimately, it came out of my word processor in room 207 in the Cannon House office building. Eric says one of the things that prompted Democrats to draft the anti-drug law was the death of a basketball star named Len Bias. He had it all. He had speed. His grace was acrobatic. He was drafted this week by the champion Boston Celtics. He had it all until this morning when his heart gave out and he died. There are reports that traces of cocaine were found in Bias's system. Soon, news stories came out saying it wasn't just cocaine, but crack cocaine that had killed Len Bias. It turned out those news stories were wrong. Bias had used powder cocaine, not crack. But Eric Sterling says the crack rumors took hold, and it all helped fuel the fear around drugs in general and crack in particular. In the nine years I worked for the Congress, I'd never been involved in such a hasty, half-baked legislative process. This is when the notorious sentencing disparity between powder and crack cocaine got written into law and the racial disparities that came along with it, since people convicted of crack cocaine offenses were mostly black, while people who were busted for powder cocaine were mostly white. And if you got caught with five grams of crack, a little more than a teaspoon's worth— it would automatically get you the same sentence as getting caught with 100 times that amount of powder cocaine. In both cases, the sentence would be five years in prison. Eric says the push to get a tough-sounding bill out the door was so rushed that, in retrospect, he's actually embarrassed by the numbers and measurements he helped Congress come up with. Members of Congress, uh, like many of us, are not particularly fluent in the metric system. If it says five grams, you know, is let's say is a gram, is that a, is a kilogram bigger than a milligram or, a big, you know, how many milligrams, you know, like, what doesn't matter. No sense. What is just, what are these quantities? This was, it's like, huh, what? Yeah, okay, wham, bam, done. Don't bother us with the details. I'm running for re-election. By the time the legislation passed, Eric says the process had left him with a growing sense of disgust. Pretty soon afterward, he left government, started an organization focused on undoing the harsh war on drugs policies he helped make. But that was a lonely effort at first. Almost everyone was pushing in the same direction. Tougher, stiffer, harsher. The calculus of the time was that you could earn serious political points by reassuring the average American voter that you were protecting them from the terrifying threat of crack. By holding up that baggie of crack, President Bush could whip up more fear in the public, fear that he could then get credit for addressing. No one among us is out of harm's way. But there was a problem with the bigger point Bush was trying to make here, because by the time he gave his speech in September of 1989, it was becoming clear that the crack problem was not that widespread, and it was not growing. 
the idea that, that it's a plague that's sweeping all sectors of society. This was never true. Craig Reinerman is a professor emeritus of sociology and legal studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and one of the editors of the book Crack in America. He told me in the 80s, there was very little evidence to suggest crack addiction was spreading to every corner of America. By 1989, crack use had already peaked and was on the decline. The percentage of household survey respondents who reported using crack in the past year was just half of 1%. For context, in 2016, the percentage who reported abusing opioids in the past year was almost 10 times that rate, 4.4%. Craig says, compared to that, half of 1% reporting they used crack, that was tiny. Very small, vanishingly small percentage of the population. And, you know, the myths that were spread about it being instantly and inevitably addicting, even at the time they knew that 80 plus percent, closer to 90 percent of people who'd ever tried it hadn't continued to use it. And the people using crack weren't really everywhere. People who smoked crack were more likely to be poor, unemployed, less educated. The rate of crack use among Black Americans was three times the rate among whites. That's who crack was hurting the most. Not to say that there couldn't be some random kid from picket fence family that gets caught up in all this. That that happens, certainly. But it didn't spread to Westchester County, as the New York Times confidently predicted it was doing. It just didn't happen. It, it It's a drug and a high that appeals to those who have virtually nothing left to lose and not too many other people. If you look at the aggregate statistics, overwhelmingly it's the most impoverished and vulnerable parts of the population. All this information was available by the time Bush gave his baggie of crack speech. In fact, I looked through the Bush archives and I found many of these statistics on crack use and how it was overall on the decline in the briefing memos that the National Institute on Drug Abuse gave the White House. So the White House had those memos as the president's speechwriters were working on the speech where the president held up a baggie full of drugs and told Americans that crack was a growing menace and a danger to everyone. In the end, Congress gave President Bush what he wanted, and then some. His administration went on to spend more on anti-drug efforts than Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan combined. Over two-thirds of that money went to law enforcement. But whatever happened to that teenager who sold crack across the street from the White House? I could see um, my teammates huddled around and conversing about something, and I was like, what's up? What's up? They was like, you heard about Keith? Keith Jackson. Next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. 
They make it simple to shop top quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Today, we're bringing you stories from the podcast The Uncertain Hour from our colleagues over at Marketplace. This season, they're looking at the war on drugs and how we got to where we are today. In America, drug laws have historically been about race. The very first one passed was aimed at Chinese opium smokers. And cocaine? It was legal until the early 20th century. Rutgers historian Donna Murch said that changed when it started to be associated with black men. You have these wild circulations of rumors about African-American cocaine consumption that it made black men more violent. As for marijuana, it was legal until the Great Depression when it was tied to Mexican immigrants. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. In the 1970s, freebasing was popular among white people. That's another way to smoke cocaine. But when black people started smoking crack cocaine, politicians led by President George H.W. Bush went on the offensive. Tough on drug criminals. Much tougher than we are now. Tougher federal laws. Tougher penalties. Beef up law enforcement. Toughen sentences. Build new prison space for 24,000 inmates. Chrissy Clark, the host of The Uncertain Hour, tells us how that crackdown played out. We're going to take it right up. So now you tell us where you want us, on the grass. Oh, you got the professional camera. Excuse me. A group of old friends is leaning in, arms intertwined, posing for a picture. Y'all can move in. Y'all can move in. Move in. This is an unofficial mini high school reunion, a little backyard cookout. That's right. I'm doing it. And chin down, chin down. A handful of people are here, former students and teachers from Spingarn High School, a public school in the northeast part of Washington, D.C. It's been closed for a few years now, but it was a tight-knit school when most of the people at this mini-reunion passed through its halls in the late 80s and early 90s. You got us? Life has been good. One more, let me get one more. Life has been good. Most of them were at Spingarn right around the time that a student... A senior, an 18-year-old named Keith Jackson, just didn't show up for class one day. David Magruder was a junior getting ready for basketball practice when he heard something had happened. I could see um, my teammates huddled around and conversing about something, and I was like, what's up, what's up? They was like, you heard about Keith? Keith Jackson. David was close to Keith's brother, He'd always liked Keith, so his ears perked up. Immediately, I thought the worst, unfortunate. The worst being? His demise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So somewhat a pessimist. But his teammates were like, no. No, no, he's not. He's not dead. He was caught over Lafayette Park. You know, the president did this drug sale. Yeah, that drug sale. By all accounts, Keith was a quiet guy. People I talked to remember him as a fiddler of pencils, a lover of basketball, usually wearing a sweatsuit. His mom worked two jobs for office cleaning companies. His dad was out of the picture. 
He lived mostly with his grandparents. He was known to be sweet, unassuming, low-key. And then, one day, on September 26, 1989, Keith Jackson disappeared from school, and he never came back. I think I was in my government class. Everyone was like, Keith got arrested. He sold drugs in front of the White House. Carrie Bridges was in the same grade as Keith at Spingarn. They'd been in school together since junior high. She says when she and her classmates heard the news about Keith, we were like, what? Why would he do that? Not why would he sell drugs. Carrie says that was actually pretty common at their school. But the bigger question for Carrie and a lot of kids at the time was, why would he sell drugs in front of the White House in downtown Washington, D.C.? Fancy and for the most part, white D.C., miles away from where any of them lived. That was the location, and we were like, you idiot. Like, come on, dude. Like, and why? Because that's not where normal (laughs) transactions would take place. Like, and and, and I wasn't a, a drug dealer by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm like, I don't think I knew anyone who would do that in that location. The Spingarden student body was almost entirely black. Most kids lived in neighborhoods where the poverty rate was double or triple the national average. These were places, unlike the blocks around the White House, where crack really did seem to leave no one out of harm's way, in one way or another. Uh, My mother at the time was on drugs. Which is why Carrie lived with her grandmother. One of Carrie's uncles struggled with drugs, too. One of my favorite uncles, he had from what I was told, smoked so much crack, he passed away behind the wheel of the car. We were surrounded by just the usage, the selling. You saw it uh, pretty consistently. Here's David Magruder again, Keith's friend who played on the Spin Garden basketball team. You would see someone wanting to do crazy, intense labor for minuscule payment. And you knew what it was. They just want to hit, you know. And some very salacious things would take place that were uh, mind-boggling to us as kids. Very, very uh, (laughs) R-rated, hardcore R-rated stuff. But, I mean, you you saw sexual things. You, You heard of sexual propositions. At the time, a lot of people believed crack was causing decay in neighborhoods like the one David and Keith lived in. The Bush administration released a policy brief the same day he gave his speech that said, quote, crack is responsible for the fact that vast patches of the American urban landscape are rapidly deteriorating. But historian Donna Murch says the drugs were getting the blame for economic problems that were already there. The 1980s is a period when you have serious recessions that are suffered in the cities, Uh, Social welfare programs were being cut, and you simultaneously had the loss of manufacturing jobs. It was just a really, really devastating time. It was in that setting that crack came on the scene in neighborhoods like Keith Jackson's. Essentially a cocaine marketing innovation, prepackaged in a cheap, easy-to-use form with a quicker, more powerful high. It's in a smokable form, you know, versus snorting powder cocaine. Smoking was something that was familiar to people. So it becomes an easier drug to consume. Initially, these rocks were $25, and then they dropped 
to 15, then 10, and even 5. So it was a way to market a product to a lower-income population. And lower-income people have a much higher risk of drug abuse and addiction than wealthier people. Research shows that recreational drug use cuts across all classes. But if you look at frequent, hardcore drug use, it's more likely among people who live in places with high unemployment rates, lower wages, more deindustrialization, more income inequality. That's true now with the opioid epidemic. And it was true back in the 1980s with crack. So people are suffering real economic displacement and divestment, and that that in turn creates the conditions for drug use. When you talk to former students at Keith Jackson's high school, Spingarn, students who went there around the time he did in the late 80s, the shadow of crack is never far away in their stories. Not just the using, but the selling. At the mini high school reunion I went to, everyone I talked to who grew up alongside Keith Jackson told me about people they knew who sold crack. Don Schatz went to Spingarn in the late 80s at the same time as Keith. He explained that the demand for crack was high in their neighborhoods. Economic opportunities were scarce. And so the appeal of selling was hard to resist. I grew up around drugs, you know, and sold drugs myself. You know, it was something, to, you know, a fad, something to do. Making money, fast money, buying clothes and cars. It was nothing to get involved with drugs when it's around you all day, every day. I talked to another guy who sold crack in the 80s as a kid, Reginald Murray. He's from the other side of the country, in Los Angeles. When Reginald was a teenager, an older guy from the neighborhood said he'd pay him up to $500 a week to stand on a corner and sell crack to customers. Reginald did the math, and it was exhilarating. His mom was getting $700 a month to raise a family of four. Hey, nah, $500 a week just for me. I mean, I could pay rent, I could pay, we can get our cable back on, clean up my wardrobe. So it just seemed like a blessing. But Reginald says from there, the calculations would get blurry. You know what you're doing is bad and it kind of bothers you. But then you look at, you know, what's being generated from it and it's kind of like, I'm paying my mother's light bills with groceries in the abundance of groceries now, you know, it's not when it gets close to the end of the month, the refrigerator is like on bare status. So all these things are changing and you know there's so much wrong with it, but the what you're looking at is so, you know, right. And, you know, crack cocaine made that possible. But when people got caught selling crack, the criminal justice system would drop a hammer on them. The war on drugs was never really the war on drugs. It was the war on us. That part of the story next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. Today, we're bringing you stories from the war on crack from the podcast The Uncertain Hour at Marketplace. The teenager who sold the crack in front of the White House, Keith Jackson, went on trial in December of 1989. I've never forgotten it. Tracy Thompson was a reporter for The Washington Post who covered the trial. That was almost 30 years ago, but she says she still thinks about Keith. I wonder what happened to him. I think about what a farce that trial was and how unfair that whole situation was. The host of The Uncertain Hour, Chrissy Clark, picks up the story from here. 
In the end, Keith Jackson did not get convicted for the crack sale in front of the White House. But the jury did convict Keith of selling crack three other times to undercover agents in the months leading up to the White House deal. Two of the charges were for selling at least five grams of crack, a little more than a teaspoon's worth. The third was for selling at least 50 grams of crack, about three and a half tablespoons. Keith had no prior criminal record. Tracy says watching Keith during the trial... He looked like a scared kid. He looked like a scared kid. But the judge didn't have much choice when it came time to sentence Keith. The federal mandatory minimum sentencing laws that Republicans and Democrats in Congress had passed a few years before in 1986, they set up strict formulas for how much time Keith would get. Based on the amounts of crack he sold, his sentence came out to 10 years in prison. When the judge handed down the sentence, he told Keith he seemed like a nice young man who'd been out of control for a period of time. He also told Keith he thought a 10-year sentence was too harsh. He apologized to him, and he told him, I don't have any discretion here. This is what the law says I have to do. The judge actually suggested that Keith make a personal appeal to President Bush. He used you in the sense of making a big drug speech, the judge said, but he's a decent man. Maybe he can find a way to reduce at least some of that sentence. There's no record anything came of the judge's suggestion. The only public comment Bush ever made about the teenager the DEA lured to the park in front of the White House to buy crack for his speech was back at that tree farm in Maine, right after he'd given his speech. And he said this. A man was busted in front of the White House, and I cannot feel sorry for him. I'm sorry they ought not to be peddling these insidious drugs that ruin the children in this country. And I don't care where it is, I'm glad that the DEA and everybody else is going after him with a renewed vigor. When Bush was pressed further, he said, I don't understand. Does someone have some advocates here for this drug guy? Tracy Thompson says the day Keith was sentenced. Later on, I heard that when they put him back in the holding cell, that he just completely lost it and he was crying and hysterical and threw himself on the floor of the cell and they were worried he was going to hurt himself and they eventually had to come in and put him in a straitjacket. Keith's arrest, his trial, his sentencing, they got national media attention because of the crazy circumstances that happened to surround Keith's case. The bizarre story behind Bush's baggie of crack speech, the setup. But what might be more important about Keith Jackson's story are the ordinary parts. A young man of color from a poor neighborhood was convicted of a nonviolent, low-level drug offense. He was put in prison for a long time. He was put there because of things like mandatory minimums and a zero-tolerance policy towards drugs that focused on law enforcement. Here are some numbers to consider. Since 1986, when Congress established mandatory minimum sentences for drugs, the number of people in federal prison has almost quadrupled. I should point out that federal prison is just a small slice of the overall U.S. prison population. But when it comes to federal prison, nearly half of all inmates are in for drug crimes. And about 75% of them are Black or Hispanic. The most common drug charges in federal prison these days are for low-level sales. And a report from a few years ago by the U.S. Department of Justice found that in 2012, the majority of people who were in federal prison for crack 
like Keith Jackson, got at least 10 years in prison. Tracy Thompson says covering the federal courts 30 years ago during Keith Jackson's trial, when these even tougher-on-drugs policies had only recently been put in place, you could just start to see the shape of things to come. At that time, they were just funneling a million of these things through the federal courts. You weren't hearing about these cases in terms of, here's somebody who got caught with a little bitty bag of crack, you know, something the size of your left molar. They went to prison for 10 years. And if we keep this up, we're going to put a generation of young black men in prison. Keith Jackson was released from prison in 1998. I spent months trying to reach him to see what's happened since. I tried old numbers. I sent him letters. Eventually, I did talk to some of his family, found out he has a job in an office. But that was about it. And then Keith called me one night to say he didn't want to be interviewed. He wants to move on with his life. Understandable. But there are so many Keith Jacksons out there. Or, I should say, in there. So many young men of color charged with low-level drug sales and put behind bars for a very long time. Do you guys want to just buy the heads? Um, Oh, gracious and merciful Lord, we thank you for this day, for this gathering, for this mini-reunion of Spingon family and friends, Lord. Now we ask that you would bless this food. At the mini-reunion of students and teachers of Spingarn High School, where Keith Jackson went, people bowed their heads and said grace before they dug into the potluck. Everyone I talked to over the turkey burgers and deviled eggs had a story about how zero-tolerance drug policies and mandatory minimum sentences had affected them. One form it takes is in the people that are missing from their reunions and mini-reunions. Keith Jackson and lots of others. It was typical to see someone in our neighborhood, and then the next week you're like, hey, what happened to such and such? That's David Magruder again, Keith Jackson's classmate on the basketball team. He says when someone disappeared, odds were good they'd gone to prison. A study of police records in D.C. from the late 80s showed that about 20% of young black men in the district, ages 18 to 22, had been charged with a drug crime. Carrie Bridges remembers that suddenly people were getting serious prison time for those crimes. We were like, where is this coming from? Carrie says when she found out her classmate Keith Jackson had gotten 10 years in prison, she felt like he was a scapegoat in the war on drugs. Poor Keith. He was still a kid. And you pretty much ruined his life. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? The war on drugs was never really the war on drugs. It was the war on us. That's Leroy Lewis. He taught government and journalism when Keith Jackson was a student at Spingarden High School. That's how many people felt uh, during the Bush speech and during his little uh, drama with the bag of crack and even with the, uh, the arrest of Keith Jackson. It was just a betrayal and it was just uh, a signal. Look out, we're coming after you and we're coming in your communities and we're going to just decimate you. The first time I talked to Leroy, I mentioned that I was also going to be talking to some of the men who'd worked in the Bush administration, who'd worked on the baggie of crack speech that Keith Jackson indirectly got caught up in. In fact, I was going to be talking to one of them later that day. Just wondering, is there anything you'd like me to ask him on on your behalf? Maybe you should ask 
How fair did he think that that situation was to Keith Jackson and to all of the other young people that were directly affected negatively by the consequences of what the president did and said? I put that question to Bush speechwriter Mark Davis. He's the guy who came up with the idea of using the baggie of crack as a prop. I was talking actually to a, a former teacher of Keith Jackson's. He was angry with with you, with, with the speechwriters who, who, who sort of began all of this. And he said, you know, you guys were part of the problem. And he wanted to, to ask you, how fair do you think a, that situation was to someone like Keith Jackson? Well, I don't think it was fair at all. And it wasn't the situation that the speechwriters envisioned. Um, but I do agree. Uh, we, we've... Uh, do have to quit doing what we're doing. We've done it for three decades now, and it's not working. But other people from the Bush administration see it differently. Edward McNally worked on the baggie of crack speech, too. He says, yes, mandatory minimums led to unfair sentences for some people. But he made this analogy between the war on drugs and other kinds of wars. I don't think there's been uh, a war yet where we've been able to avoid any Americans dying from friendly fire. So it's a really tragic, unacceptable, and unwelcome reality. I don't think collateral damage is acceptable. But maybe unavoidable, it sounds like you're saying. That may be a reality as well. But if Keith Jackson and potentially hundreds of thousands of others became, as Ed McNally called it, collateral damage, caught by friendly fire and the war on drugs, Ed also wanted to make sure to point out, in his mind, it wasn't all in vain. He reminded me of how bad things were when crack was at its height. It destroyed whole communities. Uh, it was block after block and whole neighborhoods taken over by corrupt crack gangs. A lot of those realities have changed, Ed told me. And he credits the kinds of tough-on-drug crimes policies that came out of the Bush administration he worked for. There are many key elements of the so-called war on drugs that were successful in bringing about that result. Things have gotten better when it comes to crack and the violence that surrounded it. But the real question, right, is whether the war on drugs, the steep sentences, the tougher punishments, whether that was what made things better. Turns out, there's no good evidence showing that it did. There's no evidence. I mean, just to take away good. There's no evidence. Peter Reuter is an economist and a professor of criminology at the University of Maryland. And he explained to me law enforcement has basically two main goals when it comes to drugs. One is about morality, punishing people for doing things that we as a society see as bad. But the other goal of law enforcement, Peter says, is much more practical and economic. And it all comes back to thinking about markets for drugs like any other kind of market, that is, ruled by the forces of supply and demand. Law enforcement, Peter says, is an effort to constrict supply. Constrict the supply of drugs to make drug prices go up, because more expensive drugs should... Presumably reduce demand. If the probability of getting arrested and going to prison goes up, then in the standard economic model, there'll be some people who will decide not to sell drugs at the current price because the compensation they get is not worth that additional risk. 
that may lead to an increase in price. And in its simplest form, this model seems to work. Just outlawing any given drug does likely reduce its supply and increase its price. But Peter says as much as he loves the supply and demand theories that drive this model, there's just not evidence to show that in the real world, stiffer and stiffer law enforcement or sentencing makes much more of a dent in reducing the drug supply or increasing the price. I have used this model over a very long career, and I would very much like it if there was some evidence that it was correct. Uh, In fact, what is striking is how little evidence there is for it. And in fact, there's some very striking evidence against this model that drug policy researchers have been banging their heads against for the last few years. Namely, that if you look at the 80s and 90s, when the war on drugs was ramping up and dealers were more likely to get locked up, the price of crack was falling. More intense law enforcement did not seem to deter people from selling or using drugs. Peter has a lot of theories about why that might be. For one... Drug sellers are very poorly informed about the senses they face. Or, as Don Schatz, the Spingarn grad who used to sell drugs, put it to me. You know, when you out there doing crime, you don't look at, oh, I might get a lot of time if I sell these rocks. People wasn't looking at that, you know, because it's like, it's like everybody think they ain't going to never get caught. Ain't nobody going to study the, the law and say, OK, OK, I'm going to look up this crime and see how much it, it carries if I, if I do this. Nobody does that, you know. <laughs> so if tougher and tougher laws don't work, what does? I asked Peter Reuter that question. Well, I'm going to sound as pedestrian as a public health person, but I believe that we can, by expanding and improving treatment, substantially reduce the demand for the drugs that cause us the most problem, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, you know, treatment, even not very good treatment, which is the treatment that's generally available, makes a difference. And we can manage this problem, which is all we ever do with social problems. We can manage this problem better by focusing on the demand side. It occurred to me that this is pretty much what Carrie Bridges, Keith Jackson's classmate, whose family struggled with crack, has been thinking all her life about how to handle drug epidemics. My focus was never to be on the people that are selling drugs. It was The focus should have been on the people that were using because if there's no demand, there's no need to supply. So it was always more, we need to do whatever we need to do to get people off of drugs. And Carrie says, for people like her mom and her uncle, there weren't many options. There wasn't any, we're going to send you away to rehab and you can go to California and stay at this luxury place where they'll teach you how to meditate. And no, they didn't have that. She compares that to the way she hears people talk about the opioid crisis now. They're addictive and it's a disease and we need to get them some help. Okay, but we didn't need to get them any help years ago? Okay, I was just wondering. So, as a black woman in these United States, like, what were you doing 20, 30 years ago when it was, when it was a problem then? But it wasn't a problem because they couldn't identify. It wasn't until it stretched over different demographics, a different socioeconomic class, and then it it became a problem. But it's always been a problem. So, like, right now, we're like, oh, that's been a problem. Like, you're, you're new to this. We're not. 
helping drug users rather than locking up small-time dealers, these are lessons about how to deal with a drug epidemic that someone like Carrie Bridges has come to know in her bones. After she watched so many of her peers, her friends, and family turn into the collateral damage of the war on drugs. They're conclusions that drug researchers like Peter Reuter have come to after studying the data for over 30 years. But it's still worth asking whether we, as a country, have really learned anything from the war on crack. What's changed and what hasn't as we deal with a new drug epidemic, the biggest one we've ever faced? We want to thank Chrissy Clark and the whole team at The Uncertain Hour from Marketplace for bringing us today's show. The series goes on to tackle the question, if stiffer law enforcement doesn't work, why do drug epidemics end? You can hear about that and what it means for the opioid epidemic on The Uncertain Hour. The latest season just dropped. Today's show is produced by Chrissy Clark and Caitlin Esch, along with associate producer Peter Ballinen-Rosen. We had help from Lyra Smith, production assistant Annie Reese, and digital producer Tony Wagner. Catherine Winter edited the show. Special thanks to Marketplace's Nancy Fargali, Sitara Nieves, and Deborah Clark. Our production manager is Najib Amini, mixing and sound design from Jake Gorski, with an assist from Reveal Sound Design Team Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story. Music.